Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another Lord's Day. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that makes our salvation possible. Thank you for the book of Hebrews and the many powerful lessons we learn about your son and the greatness of your son in it. Bless our study. Let it be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by thanking all of you who are watching this Bible class video. Not only do we have our members at Monte Vista Church of Christ watching this, this video, but we have people, saints from around the country, from around the globe watching it, and we certainly appreciate it. We're very, very thankful for you studying with us each week. Thank you so much. Over the past few weeks, and we haven't had a study on Hebrews in about a week, but over the past few weeks, we've been studying from the book of Hebrews, and we've been learning about the superiority of Christ. We've been learning about how Christ is superior to everything that is found under the Old Testament system. We've learned that he's superior to, superior to angels, he's superior to the prophets, he's superior to Moses and Joshua, and, and now we're learning about how he's even superior to Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. Now, we're going to be studying chapter 7 in this video. But before we do that, I want to remind you that we do have outlines available for these classes. Uh, these outlines, I've made them somewhat different now. They, are, uh, they comprise two important things. First, there is a summary of the chapter uh, on the outline, and then secondly, there are also Bible study questions for you to fill out if you want to as we, as we proceed in this study. Now, if you remember in chapter 6, and we studied chapter 6 last Sunday, in chapter 6, we saw a chapter that really had two important things that were being promoted in it. In chapter 6, there was a rebuke from the writer, and there was an exhortation. There was rebuke and there was encouragement. Now, if you remember, the rebuke really had to do with the fact that the writer was frustrated because these Hebrew Christians that he originally wrote to, they were not growing in the faith. They were not spiritually maturing. Instead of being on the meat of the word by this time, he says they were still on the milk. They were still little babies and, and infants in Christ. And so he spent some time rebuking them for that and encouraging them to grow and press on to maturity in Jesus Christ. There was rebuke and exhortation in chapter 6. And when you move on to chapter 7, you see exactly what the Hebrew writer means when he talks about meaty issues. He was upset because these Hebrew Christians could not comprehend by this time meaty issues of the gospel. And in chapter 7, he gives an example of what he's talking about by returning to the theme of the priesthood of Jesus. The issue of the priesthood of Jesus is an example of the meat of the word. Chapter 7 is a chapter about how Jesus is a high priest under the new covenant He's a high priest for Christians, and his priesthood is in the order of a man named Melchizedek. He's a high priest like Melchizedek. So we're going to study that in chapter 7 in this video. But before we do that, let me just let me say a couple of things about this chapter, chapter 7, just as a way of introduction. 
First, let me say that this will be the longest chapter that we have gone through so far in our studies of Hebrews. This chapter is made up of 28 verses, and this is a very difficult chapter. If you are a new convert, this may be a chapter you struggle with to a degree because there is a lot of meaty things being discussed in this chapter. There are a lot of things where having an Old Testament background will certainly help you, but I, I promise you I'm going to do my best to simplify this. This is a, a very long chapter, a very difficult and meaty chapter, and we only have about 40 minutes to do these videos. I don't have three hours, and so I'm going to have to try to simplify this and just give you the basic summary and overview of what's being discussed in this chapter. So, so that's going to be the purpose of this video, just to break it down, simplify it, and give an overview, okay? In fact, I'm going to break this chapter down into three different sections. The first section is going to be verses 1 through 10. Verses 1 through 10, Hebrews 7 and verse 1. He says, for this Melchizedek, and in, if you remember in chapter 6 and verse 20, he talks about how Jesus has been made a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7 and verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have the commandment and the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises, but without any dispute, the lesser is, greater, is, is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on, that he lives on. And so to speak through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Let me do my best here to try to simplify those verses. First, notice how in the first three verses of that unit, the Hebrew writer reminds us of some important things concerning Melchizedek. Melchizedek is mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. He's only mentioned two times in the Old Testament. One of those is in Genesis 14. That is where we're introduced to him, and he, even then, appears to be a very mysterious Bible character. There is a lot we don't know about this man, Melchizedek, but even though he's a very mysterious person that is mentioned as early as the book of Genesis, he clearly, he clearly is a very important Bible character. He is mentioned at least nine times in the book of Hebrews. He is mentioned because he is a type of Christ. 
And so let's just quickly review some of the things that the Hebrew writer says about Melchizedek. First, notice how in these verses he reminds the people that he's speaking to, the Jewish people, that Melchizedek was the king of Salem. He was a king. He was a king of Salem. Salem, many scholars suggest, is would later become the city of Jerusalem. So he was a king of Salem, which would later be Jerusalem, the city that Jesus would be executed in later, ironically. Melchizedek was also a priest. Like Jesus would later become both a king and a priest, Melchizedek is also a king and a priest. In fact, he says Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. He was a priest of God. And he also encountered Abraham. He encountered Abraham after Abraham had defeated the kings of the east. If you remember that story, the kings of the east captured Abraham's nephew Lot and Lot's family. And Abraham got together a group of men and they defeated the kings of the east, and they rescued Lot and his family, and they even received spoils of war. They received spoils from the kings of the east. And Abraham, the writer says, paid a portion or gave a portion of those spoils to Melchizedek. When encountering Melchizedek, the Hebrew writer says that Abraham paid him tithes. He gave him a tenth of his spoils of war, and Melchizedek blessed him. Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham, and he also blessed Abraham. And then another thing we're told here is we're also, we're also told what Melchizedek, na his name means. His name means peace, king of peace, or king of righteousness. And so this man whose name means king of peace or king of righteousness, he encounters Abraham after Abraham defeats the kings of the east and Abraham gives him a tenth of his spoils of war and Melchizedek gives him a blessing. Those are some of the facts that are given there, but none of those are the most interesting fact. The most interesting fact we have about, have about Melchizedek in this unit is found in verse number three when it says that Melchizedek was without father and without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Maybe you read those verses and, and you scratch your head. Maybe you read those verses and say, what does that mean? What does it mean when it says that Melchizedek was without father and mother and without genealogy? What does it mean when it says he had no beginning or end of days. But before I tell you what that means, let me first tell you what it doesn't mean, okay? First, when the Hebrew writer uses this language in verse number three, he does not mean that Melchizedek was eternal. He does not mean that he's deity like God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. He does not mean that Melchizedek wasn't flesh and blood, that he wasn't a man. Oh, yes, Melchizedek was a man. 
He was made of flesh and blood just like you and I. He did have a father and he had a mother and he was born and he died. When the Hebrew writer used this language here, he does not mean that Melchizedek doesn't have a mother and a father and a beginning and an end. Instead, what he means is we have no record of these things. We have no record of his family. We have no record of his birth, when he was born. We have no record of his father or his mother or his siblings. We have no record of his death or his kingship. We don't even have record of his priesthood. We have no record of any of these things. Concerning Melchizedek, it is in, it is in that way that he is similar to the Son of God. It is in that way in which he is similar to to Jesus, it is in that way in which he remains a priest perpetually because we have no record of the beginning of his priesthood or the end of it. That is how he remains a priest perpetually. And so Melchizedek is a mysterious character because even though he was a man, and he was flesh and blood, there's a lot we don't know about him. We don't have records of many of the details of his life. And so the first three verses break down some of the things we know about Melchizedek. And then after bringing up Melchizedek in verses 4 through 10 of this section, the writer is going to make the point how Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Remember, Abraham was the father of the Hebrew people. The nation of Israel began with Abraham, God's three promises to Abraham. Abraham is one of the more one of the Mount Rushmore characters of the Bible, and yet even though he's this great man of faith, the Hebrew writer is making the point that Melchizedek, this mysterious Melchizedek, that we don't have records concerning his birth and his life and his death and his priesthood, he's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Abraham, and as a result of being greater than Abraham, he's also going to make the point that Melchizedek's priesthood is also greater than the priesthood of Abraham. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and as a result, his priesthood is greater than the descendants of Abraham. Someone says, well, how do we know that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham? Well, go back to the text and look at the evidence the Hebrew writer gives. The first reason why, as to why we can know Melchizedek was greater than Abraham is because, number one, according to verse 4, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek then paid tithes to Abraham. Abraham paid tithes to him. He gave monetary honor to him. And remember, under the old covenant system, under the Mosaic law, tithing was part of that. That's not under the new covenant, but tithing is under the old covenant. That is, God required the Jewish people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, to give a tenth of their blessings back to him. They were to give a tenth of their blessings to the Levitical priesthood. And the Levitical priests were to live off of those tithes. They were to use those tithes to keep up the tabernacle and the temple and to, and to engage in the service of God. When we think of tithing, we typically think of that tithing that took place 
under the Old Testament law of Moses. But notice how tithing was in effect, really, before the old law even came along. Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, and the tithes that he gave is very different than what you find under the, under the, under the law of Moses. Under the law of Moses, the Israel's tithe to support the priest and so that God's temple and ministry and service could be supported financially. But Abraham, he gave tithes not to support a, a Levitical priesthood. There was no Levitical priesthood. He gave tithes not to support a temple or a tabernacle. None of those things were in effect yet. Abraham gave tithes to show honor to this man, Melchizedek. That was his way of showing respect and honor to Melchizedek. He paid tithes to Melchizedek directly. That was a sign that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And another sign that Melchizedek was greater was the fact that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Verse 7, but without any dispute, the lesser, the lesser, there's a reference to Abraham. The lesser is blessed by the greater. The greater is a reference to Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the greater, blessed the lesser Abraham after Abraham paid tithes to him. And so Melchizedek is greater because he received tithes from Abraham and he blessed Abraham. But another reason why the Hebrew writer says that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham is because Abraham's descendants, not only did Abraham pay tithes to him, but also so did Abraham's descendants. Abraham's descendants paid tithes to Melchizedek. The Levites paid tithes to Melchizedek. How? Well, notice carefully what verses 8 through 10 says. Verses 8 through 10 say, that the Levites paid tithes to Melchizedek because they were still in his loins when he paid tithes to Melchizedek. The Levites were still in his loins when he paid tithes to Melchizedek. In other words, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek because the Levites were still in his loins, in a sense, the Levites were also doing it as well. And so Abraham and his descendants pay tithes to Melchizedek. The point is, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. He's greater than Abraham. That's the point that's being made. That's the point of this first section in Hebrews chapter 7. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than Abraham's priesthood. And so, let's go now to verse 11. In verse 11 of Hebrews 7, it says, Now if the priesthood was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there also takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. 
And this is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of law, of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are priests forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the other hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of his weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And as much as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now let me just say, that's a meaty text there. That that is an extremely difficult text. And I'm going to do my best to simplify it over the next five minutes or so. But it's, it's a very difficult text to say the least. Let's go back up and look at verse 11. In verse 11, he mentions the Levitical priesthood. The priesthood that was found under the Old Testament law of Moses. He's making the point that that priesthood clearly wasn't sufficient. It clearly was not perfect. If it was perfect, then God would not have felt the need to replace it. It needed to be replaced. Because it was not sufficient. And it was replaced. He makes the point that it was replaced by the priesthood of Jesus. The Levitical priesthood was insufficient. It needed to be replaced and it was replaced by the priesthood of Jesus. But for the Jesus priesthood to come into effect, a change of law also needed to take place. That was important because if you remember, under the old covenant system, Jesus could have never become a priest. Why could Jesus never become a priest under the old covenant system? Well, it's because he came from the tribe of Judah. He came from the tribe of Judah. If you remember, under the Old Testament law of Moses, the priest could only come from which tribe? The tribe of Levi. The priest could only come from the tribe of Levi, and Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. And so if Jesus was a priest under the Old Testament law of Moses, he would have been sinning. It was not authorized for anybody outside of Levi to become a priest. That's the point the Hebrew writer is making. In fact, he does something very interesting to drive his point home. In verses 12 through 14, he makes this argument by pointing to the silence of God. He says in verse 12, for when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. If the priesthood is going to change, the law has to change also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. That's talking about Jesus. He came from the tribe of Judah for which no one has officiated at the altar. No one officiated at the altar from Judah. 
For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Oh, this is such a powerful argument the Hebrew writer is making. I, I love it. Notice how he is making his point that Jesus could not have been a priest under the Old Testament law of Moses because he came from the tribe of Judah, and he makes this point by arguing from the silence of God. He argues from the silence of God. He says, even though there was no specific scripture that said, thou shalt not have a priest from Judah, even though there was no scripture in the Old Testament that, that said that, that still didn't mean it was okay. That still didn't mean that God gave permission for priests to come from Judah. Here the Hebrew writer is making the point that God said exactly where the priests were to come from. He says that the priests were to come from Levi, and that was the end of the matter. God's silence about priests coming from Judah was not permissive. That did not give people from Judah permission to have priests. Just because there was not a thou shalt not have a priest from Judah did not mean that God was okay with priests coming from Judah. That is clearly the point he's making in those verses. And that's the point we really got to take to heart because so often when you come across people, they'll say things like this. They'll say, well, it is okay for us to use instruments in our worship to God because there's no verse that says thou shalt not have a guitar. There's no verse that says thou shalt not have a drum set or a piano. There's no verse that doesn't say thou shalt not have Pepsi Cola and, and pizza on the Lord's Supper table. There's no verse that doesn't say thou shalt not have women serve as elders in the church. So often people try to say that God's silence on a matter is permissive, but that is not what the Hebrew writer is saying in those verses. In these verses, the Hebrew writer is making the opposite argument. He is saying that we don't get our authority to do things based on what God hasn't said. Instead, we get our authority to do things based on what God has said. Jesus couldn't be a priest under the old covenant system because there was no book, chapter, and verse that said priests could come from Judah. And so for Jesus to be a priest, there had to be a change of law. A change of covenant or law needed to take place, and that's exactly what happened. The new covenant came into a full, in force through the blood of Jesus, and because there's a new covenant now, and the old covenant has been done away with, now Jesus can serve as a priest. So that's the point the Hebrew writer makes. And then he gives some other facts about the priesthood of Jesus. In verses 15 through 22, he talks about some of the differences between the priesthood of Jesus and the Levitical priesthood. He says that unlike the Levitical priesthood, Jesus remains a priest forever. If you remember, under the old covenant, Levitical priests, Levites, could only remain priests as long as they were alive. Once they died, they were no longer priests. They had a beginning and an end of their priesthood, but that's not the case with Jesus. Jesus has no beginning and no end to his priesthood. He remains a high priest forever. The Hebrew writer also says that Jesus is a priest under a new and better covenant. 
The Levites were priests under the old covenant, a covenant that required animal sacrifices. But Jesus is the priest under the new covenant, a covenant that doesn't require animal sacrifices, a covenant that does lead to true forgiveness of sins because he shed his perfect blood at the cross. He's also a priest over a priesthood that doesn't, that doesn't make priests on the basis of physical requirement. Physical requirement. That's the point he makes in verse number 16. If you remember under the old covenant, the priests became priests based on physical requirement because they came from Levi. Because they were descendants of Aaron, that qualified them to be priests. But that doesn't qualify Jesus to be a priest under the new covenant. Under the new covenant, he is a priest not on the basis of physical requirement. Instead, he is a priest on the basis of, his, of the power of his indestructible life. It is because he's the son of God. It's because God specifically chose him. It is because he died on the cross for our sins and he was raised to live forever. And so the requirements to be a priest are different under the two covenants. And then another difference is Jesus is a priest over a priesthood and under a covenant that offers a better hope. We have a better hope under the new covenant. We have a hope that we can actually draw as close to God as possible. We can actually enter into a holy and righteous relationship with God. We have a high priest who has actually entered into the most holy place in heaven. He sits at the right hand of God. God has made him a high priest. Through him we have access to God. We have access to heaven. And God has sworn with an oath that he will never remove Jesus from being the high priest. God has made an oath that he won't change his mind about this. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is his son. Jesus is our access to God. He provides access to God. And God says that's the way it's always going to be. It's never going to change. Unlike the Levitical priesthood that eventually came to an end. And so the point of that. And I'm doing my best to simplify this. But the point of this whole section here that we just read is Jesus, his priesthood is superior to the priesthood of Aaron. All of these verses talk about how Jesus is able to be our high priest and why his priesthood is far superior to the Levitical priesthood. Remember, these Hebrew Christians were thinking about leaving the new covenant. They were thinking about leaving the gospel in Jesus to go back to living under the old law. And the Hebrew writer is making the point, don't do that. Don't foolishly leave the priesthood of Jesus because if you leave his priesthood, you're going to be going back to something that is far inferior to what you have in Jesus. Jesus is superior high priest. And they didn't need to leave him, and we don't either. And so let's conclude by reading verses 23 through 28, and then that's going to be our study. Verse 23, the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. They couldn't continue being priests under the old covenant system because eventually they died, and they had to be replaced by other people. 
Verse 24, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for him to have such a, for, for us, I'm sorry, to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, that is, the word of God under the new covenant, which came after the law appoints a son, made perfect forever. Okay, these verses here talk about two things very quickly, and that's going to be the class. First, in verses 23 down to verse number 26, he tells us why exactly Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. First, the Levitical priesthood is inferior to the priesthood of Jesus because under the old covenant system, the Levites were only priests for their appointed time. They had a beginning, they had an end. Once they died, they were no longer priests. That's how it worked under the old covenant, but under the new covenant, Jesus holds his position forever. He's a high priest forever. He'll never be replaced. In verse number 25, he says, not only is Jesus a high priest forever, but he's also able to save us forever. There'll never come a time when our high priest is unable to save us. He can always save us. And not only can he always save us, but thirdly, he also makes the point that he can always make intercession for us. You see, one of the responsibilities of the priests under the old covenant was to make intercession for the people, to be a mediator between them and God, but they can only do that for the, the time they were priests. Once they died, they couldn't make intercession anymore. That's not the case with Jesus. Jesus is not going to die as he sits at the right hand of God. He will always be priest. He will always be exalted. He'll always be able to save. And as a result, he'll always be able to make intercession for us. He'll always be able to plead our case to God. He'll always be able to be our mediator. He'll always be able to make peace between us and the Holy Father. Verses 23 to the end of verse 25, the Hebrew writer is telling us why Jesus' priesthood is superior. And then in the last few verses, the chapter concludes by telling us just how great our high priest is. Verse 26 says that Jesus is a great high priest because he is holy and he's innocent, he's undefiled, without sin, and he's been exalted above the heavens. That couldn't be said of any of the priests under the old covenant. And also, unlike those priests under the old covenant, Jesus doesn't have to offer up sacrifices daily. Remember, the priests under the old covenant, they had to offer up sacrifices all throughout the day, every single day. In fact, the priests were also sinners. And so that means that they had to offer up sacrifices not only for the people, but also for themselves. 
Jesus is not a priest like that. He doesn't offer sacrifices for himself because he was without sin, and he doesn't have to offer sacrifice for us every single day because his sacrifice on the cross was good enough for all time. He offered himself one time for all time for God's people, and that makes him a superior high priest than those under the old covenant. And another thing is, the writer makes the point that the Levites, they were weak men. Weak men. In other words, they were sinners. They were transgressors of God's law. They had all kinds of weaknesses, but that's not true of Jesus. Jesus, while he was a man, he wasn't just a man. He wasn't a weak man. He didn't have sin in his life. He overcame sin, overcame the devil, and was raised from the dead. The chapter concludes by talking about how great our high priest is. And he will continue talking about this even further in the next chapter. And so here's the take home. The take home is the priesthood of Jesus is a superior priesthood. It is the greatest priesthood. And if we're Christians, if we've been baptized for the remission of our sins, that means that we are part of this priesthood. We are part of the priesthood of Jesus. Jesus is our high priest. He makes intercession for us all the time. And we need to thank God that we have such a faithful high priest. Thank you for studying with me. We'll pick up with chapter 8 in our next video.